Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special mailbag edition. So special, of course, that we actually pre-recorded this one because I'm... Well, right now, mate, I am somewhere in southwestern Queensland. The good Lord willing, the creeks don't rise. And I say that literally because the Diamantina is in full flow right now. And it was only a couple of days ago, we're recording this in, uh, on the 20th of June, for full disclosure, that the roads reopened to Birdsville, mate. So uh, I am hoping I get there. I, for those who don't know, am Scott Phillips. He, the man I'm talking to, is, of course, Andrew Page, the founder and managing director of strawman.com. Uh, some sort of private clubby online investment. Uh, some, what's, the, what's the phrase again? Yeah, it's a private online investment club. That's the one. That's you got the one. it. You got it. <laughs> How are you, mate? <laughs> I'm very good. I'm very good. Excellent. Mate, right now, I'm looking forward to getting into some questions. Right now, I'm either having a great time, mate, or I'm stuck uh, chassis deep in some mud somewhere in southwest Queensland, and I maybe sometime. <laughs> e- either way, it's an adventure and, and some good anecdotes for later on. We will have lots of stories. We'll have lots of stories. And I'll try and even post some photos on the social. So if you, if you are so inclined, feel free to follow us. I'll give those details later. Mate, um, as you said, looking forward to get stuck into the mailbag. So let's do exactly that. Um, two questions from Ethan. He says, Hi, Scott and Ram. Two quick ones. First, on the last podcast, Ram mentioned that a five dollars to $10,000 trade on one of his small caps could swing the share price dramatically. He says in brackets, I've also heard Ram mention that a small trade could swing the price a long way on some of his small caps a few times. So, Ethan says, what's to stop someone buying a small cap? Say 40 grand's worth of something. Then a month later, dumping a 50k trade on it to swing the share price and then close all positions. Getting the upswing on the initial investment, it sounds illegal. He says, also, if you don't want to include the first question, that is fine. Don't want anyone getting the wrong ideas from a question, lol. <laughs> so I'm not sure whether Ethan's suggesting he should do it, whether he's blaming you and saying, alleging you're doing it, or maybe he's just interested. Let's assume it's the latter, mate. Um, what is to stop someone just uh, playing the market this way and making some cash? Uh, I don't think there is actually. I'm, 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 my mind's racing to think if there are some technical restrictions uh, ag- against that. But I think that there is actually a lot of bots and algorithmic trading that, that tries to sort of influence the market price by putting trades through. Um, why? Do, how could that not work? Well, I mean, you could you could just end up spending a lot of money to shoot yourself in the foot, <laughs> yeah, which right. is why it probably couldn't work. And yeah, it's, an, yeah. it's an excellent, Ethan's like, right, he's thinking along the right lines here. Yeah, so yeah. let's say that, um, you know, there's only enough volume on offer mm-hmm. at a mm-hmm. price that I'm happy with to, to buy $10,000 worth of shares. And then let's say that we look at the market depth, which just queues up all of the buys and all of the sells, one on the left side, one on the right side, going from uh, highest to lowest on the buy and lowest to highest on the sell. I hope I haven't lost everyone there. It's hard, so let's, it's hard. Un- let's unpack that, mate. So just, just let, me, let, me, uh, let me explain what I think I just heard from you. On your screen, on your broker screen, you can see the list. When you, when you go to auction, the auction, no one, no one kind of puts their bids in up front. Or if they do, yep. they're, they're kind of not, not known, right? With shares, you can put a limit order, which basically says, I will sell these shares if the price reaches X. Or mm. I want to buy these shares if the price falls to falls to Y, and you can put those mm. in in advance. And so, which one thing I like about the transparency of the market is, at least in this instance, those orders get put on a virtual run sheet, order sheet, and you can see them. And they call that market depth. Yep, yep. And there's a price time priority on that. So. Mm-hmm. The only way to get to the front of the queue is to bid higher if you're on the buy side than anyone else or if you're on the sell side to offer a lower price than mm-hmm. anyone else. And if two people offer the same price, well, whoever gets in first gets gets priority. 
So it's kind of how it works. It's really a really fair, elegant system. Um, so let's say that on the sell side, so I've now I've filled my boots with 10 grand, nice low price I'm happy with, and then I want to push up the price. And let's mm. say because it is a very small, illiquid stock, there's mm. not a lot of orders mm. that are out there. Mm. You know, I could spend, say, another five grand and just wipe out all of those low sell orders. One might only be for $100, another one for $300. So with my five grand, I can push that all the way up. But of course, by doing that, I'm, I am myself am buying at those higher and higher and higher prices. Now, it could work if other people mm. watching this go, hang on, the price mm. has just gone up. Mm. And all the buyers all of a sudden go, well, I'm going to raise my price too. And all the sellers go, oh, actually, I'm, I'm no longer happy to offer a lower. I, wa I want a higher price. And maybe I can shift sentiment that way. And maybe enough demand comes into the market on the buy side that I can now offload all of my shares at a higher price. A lot of maybes, mate. A lot of maybes. Now, on, on what also could happen um, is that people sort of go, well, just because this idiot's put a you know <laughs> a market order through and wiped out all of those, I'm still not prepared to pay any more than I did, and so I end up with much more shares um, and no one to sell them to at, mm. at that higher mm. price. So it just doesn't always work. And even if even if it does yep. work, yeah, um, you you've got to think that once 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 all is said and done. It's a lot of risk for what might ultimately be a little bit of profit because again, I can't do this on a million dollars or two million dollars. So I might end up making three, four, five, ten percent on on a couple thousand dollars. You know? I've heard a lot of people try and talk about this with stocks that are trading at 0.1 cent increments. You know, I'll try and do that and then sell it at 0.2. You know, and I, I've doubled my money. It just you've you've got to think in two parts here. You've got to think of the price, yes, very important, but also the volumes that are on offer there. And the, and the, the, at the end of the day, it just doesn't work. Now, mate, you might be able to correct me. Are, are there, there there might actually be some technical rules around market manipulation? I'm not yep. sure if there are. No, there are, mate. So, I, well, and this is this is where ASIC has a really the Australian Securities Investments Commission, our regulator, has a really, 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 really tough time because there's no there's no specific prescription as to how you would, you know, if this happened and that happened, then therefore you've officially broken the law. Otherwise, it'd be a straight, you know, whatever. But there are absolutely rules against market manipulation. And it's to do with that, uh, the, the, the regulator slash court would have to find that you unduly or artificially, I think is the word they use, manipulated the price. But the, so, can I stop? Sorry, just yeah, to interrupt. Please. Doesn't that happen a million times every day? Isn't, isn't that what a lot of these algorithmic bots are trying to do? Like they'll try and put prices in give the impression that there's a certain amount of demand and do all of this other kind of stuff? Um, they, they go fishing for people who are prepared to trade at given prices. Mm -hmm. So not exactly the same thing. They're not, they're, not, they're not pushing the price up by their... They're not taking actions which are pushing the price up. They are inviting people to pay higher prices or sell at lower prices. But by, by a, giving a so. false impression of supply and demand. Well, but it's kind of one share here and there, right? So it doesn't. They don't. They, the bottom looking to make a make a gain in between the buy and sell. They're basically trying to exploit the buy sell spread to use some horrible, mm. horrible jargon that we shouldn't go into. Um, but generally speaking, no, they're not. They're not. They're not. Well, if they were to do that, it would be, it would be technically illegal. Whether or not mm. the asset could find them, catch them, whether they could prosecute them, a whole, whole lot of different things. That's an mm. open question. 
Uh, but there actually has been, they've been, so the, 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 the pump and dump schemes, that really is what Ethan's asking about. Um, they've actually been prosecuted here. In fact, one guy, I'll, I'll say allegedly a few times now, because I think it is, I think it, the court case has been completed, but on Hot Copper, the uh, the online um, internet chat forum for stocks in Australia, uh, was actually, I'm pr- he was prosecuted for it. I think he was found guilty, but if he hasn't been, let me throw a few more allegedly's in there. Um, mm-hmm. Exactly, trying to do that, artificially inflating the price of a share to, to profit from that gain. So mm-hmm. it has been, it absolutely has been uh, prosecuted. I'm pretty sure he may have even pled guilty. I think, but again, allegedly, allegedly. Um, so yes, it, it 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 does happen. You can be prosecuted for it. It is 100% illegal. Um, mm-hmm. So a don't do okay. it. Um, B just be just be careful. <laughs> well, even, I guess my original point was is even if you, yeah. it's just yeah. anything that seems exploitable like that, it's 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 almost always never as straightforward as it seems, and it can it can absolutely blow up as well. So, yeah, two reasons not to do it. One is it probably yeah. won't work, and two, you, <laughs> That's you, right. you, you you could be in trouble with the regulator. We were we were accused on one of our Instagram ads over the weekend. Remember, you'll like this. Uh, someone said what happens was obviously we're we're trying to pump and dump right the multi full. So mm-hmm. what what we did is we've been buying shares to push the price up. Mm-hmm. Then we released a recommendation, which, which again, fallaciously, you kind of go, okay, fine. Uh, apparently because, you know, so we were already pushing the price up because the, the comment was, oh, the price has already gone up before they made the recommendation. Obviously, they've, they've been buying shares and mm-hmm. then they put the recommendation. I'm like, so firstly, no, we don't do that. Secondly, if we were going to, that'd be the stupidest thing to try and do is to try and push the price up first, then release the recommendation. If we're going to try and screw someone over, it wouldn't be by doing it that way, dude. So that was it was pretty funny. Uh, yeah. Look, honestly, no, I, well, I was going to say no one's stupid enough to want to go to jail to make a few bob, but we see inside of tracing inside of trading cases all the time. So obviously, some people are absolutely stupid enough to do it. Um, but uh, yes, no. It, look, yeah, and, and look, it's possible some people are doing it right now. Really, honestly, so let's let's be let's be really honest. That's that's you know, someone probably doing it right now. But it would be horribly illegal. And uh, you, you, and frankly, the other thing is, ASIC and uh, the ASX have really really good data matching tools these days. So that's how insider trading gets caught, right? It very rarely gets caught from an informant these days. It gets caught from the data matching that ASIC are doing. So I think you'd be a little bit mad to try it. But there you go. Okay. All right. Uh, Ethan's second question on another podcast I listen to. The presenter suggested selling negative positions three weeks before tax time to use as a negative capital gains write-off. He says, I'm sure that's a technical term. It is it's called a capital loss. <laughs> then buying the positions back three weeks after tax cutoff. What are your thoughts? Are there any rules surrounding this? Ethan, I'm loving the fact you are uh, thinking, well, I'm not sure if I love it or not. You're, you're obviously thinking about uh, about utilizing the market uh, uh, system or maybe that others might be doing the same thing. In either case, this would be also horribly, horribly, horribly illegal. And I'm very surprised that anybody would suggest that uh, at all, let alone in a public forum. So I don't know who this person is you're talking about. I don't want to know. I'm glad I don't know because I get to say these things completely without asking. Um there are no formal thing in the in the states. They have a thing called a wash rule, which limits the, you have to. I think it's like forty five days before and after. I can't remember what their rules are over the of the states. There are no specific rules here in Australia, but the ASX, ASX the ATO has very very broad tax avoidance rules. Uh, section is it section four mate or section six? It's okay. one of those Roman no idea. Things. Yeah. Um, really really broad tax avoidance rule. If the ATO took the view that you did this, if you if you were to sell three weeks before, and then buy back three weeks after. Uh, by the way, this is going to this is going to um, air. I think just after the end of the tax year, so it's saving you either way or not. Um, if the ATO takes the view you've taken an action specifically to avoid tax, if that was the motivation, they can absolutely go you for the full tax and probably a penalty on top of that. Um, so I absolutely would not do it. Should, can you sell some stuff to my capital loss before the tax year? Absolutely. 
Can you buy back subsequently at some future point if circumstances change? Absolutely. If the ATO was taking you, you sold 15 shares, you know, 15 different companies today and then bought those same 15 companies back three months later at not dissimilar prices, um, that would be a pretty clear systemic example of straight out tax minimization. Slash tax, uh, sorry, not tax minimization, that's legal. Tax avoidance, which is illegal. Um, again, it's all about the, the terms. So I would not ever, ever recommend anyone do that. I think you are absolutely... Here's the thing, a bit like the other question you asked. Try to make a few bob and avoid and, and, and risking jail or a massive fine. I don't know, dude. There's got to be better ways to make money than trying to trying to fiddle tax rules. I'll leave that to some of the billionaires and and, and uh, some of those who end up in jail trying to do exactly this. Uh, I just wouldn't do it. Ram? I 100% agree. Um, look, it's one of those things where if you were speaking to a mate at the pub, they might go, look, you know, you can. <laughs> and look, the odds of being caught. Because, I mean, this is yeah, what makes yeah, it yeah. so hard for Masics. Well, I mean, who's yeah, to say that you yeah. didn't think, I'm really scared I want out. Yeah. I changed my mind. I changed my mind down the track and I, I wanted to back in. You know, well, no, 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 you did it for tax. No, 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 I changed my mind. So it gets very, very difficult. But, but your point is the, is, the, is the right one, which is it's probably not going to be a massive benefit to you. So it's, I, I, you, know, you know my favorite word, asymmetry. I talk about it all the time. And this is, this is a negative yeah. asymmetry. Mm, a little, mm, if, you get, if, you, if you flip up a head, you get a little bit of a gain. If you flip a tails, mm, you could mm, go to jail. Mm. <laughs> it's not, or a big fine or whatever it happens to be. It's, it's just not, it's just not worth it. Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty it's pretty straightforward, right? <laughs> just just don't do it. Um, yeah, I, I just, it does it does remind me a bit of the forty five day rule. That's the watch rule in the US, I think, isn't it? No, no so what? It's yeah. the it's a franking credit rule. Oh, thank you. Yes, okay. There's yeah. yeah so right. so if you that's if, a good so point what, actually. Yeah. So what, about enough. what what people will try and do is they'll mm-hmm. try and harvest mm-hmm. dividends. So if you yeah. you have to hold the shares as they go from what's called come dividend to ex dividend mm-hmm. and you'll get you'll get the dividend. So I could mm-hmm. buy the shares the day before they go ex dividend and yep. sell the day after mm-hmm. and I get the dividend, right? Yeah. Um, and the ATO can say that's cool. They've got no problem with that. But if you want the franking credits that's attached <laughs> to those dividends, yep. you actually have to hel- have held the shares what they call at risk for 45 trading days. Yeah. And if it's in a super fund, I believe it's ninety days. I believe they actually they actually double oh, interesting. that. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, I so like it's that. a slightly different thing, but yeah, if if you want to do your dividend harvesting, you've got to hold your shares at risk for at least forty five days. Nice. I like that's a really good point. We have we never talked about that actually. I don't think on the podcast ever. Maybe we have in the very old days, but I'm glad you mentioned it because I can I not can I say for the rec Please. for the record, it's one of these things that some clever dick sort of oh I can do this and because different <laughs> companies have different you know, I, I can take my $100,000 and I can get much higher yields free yields doesn't it, well look sometimes yeah. it will yeah. work sometimes it won't it, it, yeah. it, the market tends to arbitrage any mm-hmm. opportunity mm-hmm. any exploit that is found yeah. the, the very act yeah, right. of exploiting <laughs> yeah. it exactly. nullifies it right so it's yep. kind of yep. like I have actually seen people set up funds and stuff mm. that, that oh, work this exact strategy yeah, yeah. it's not as if even the ones well, I haven't looked at them for so long even the, I remember looking at one a while ago it outperformed a little bit it's like mm. it's a lot of work and tax and brokerage and the rest of it for something that gets you a small small gain um, there's no free lunch no there's not there really isn't um, it's uh, it, it was the same as the bloody tax rules for miners right 
it, it was all reasonable until someone exploded and they went, okay, we're going to have to stop, you know, miners, as in miners in kids, not miners as in miners. Oh, workers. right. Okay. Yeah, I was <laughs> thinking, what's that kids. one? <laughs> no, yeah, there's now, there's now some prohibitive, stupid tax on kids because, you know, people decided to put their investment in their kids' names to minimize tax, which, you know, it's just dodgy as hell. And then the rest of us gets, you know, now we've got to try and work out how to bloody invest tax effectively for kids because someone screwed it up. But there you go. Mm, it is what yep. it is. Mate, um, here's one from Shane. He says, hello, here's my question. How does it make sense? I like questions like that. So it feels like an accusation, doesn't it? How does it make sense to invest in foreign companies given tax deductibility of earnings on Australian companies? For example, a California company pays 29.8% income tax. I'm going to take your word for this. 21% federal, he says, and 8.4% state before issuing dividends. These taxes paid are not tax deductible in Australia for the investor. However, company taxes paid by Australian companies are tax deductible in Australia. Doesn't this mean foreign companies need to outperform Australian companies by at least the amount of tax paid in the foreign country? That's from Shane. Do you want me to have first go this? Do you want to first go this? Uh, yeah. So I mean, look, I think I think at the you've always got to try an apples with apples kind of comparison, yep. and the app and the apples that you're you're comparing should be the the after tax yes. return that I get as as a shareholder. Yeah. Um, the argument would be, well, why why invest in the US? Well, it might be an incredibly strong, com- durable, long-standing company that that will compound your wealth at a very high rate. So even even accounting for any after-tax uh, 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 calculations, you're still you're still well ahead. Even even factoring in FX and all the rest of it. So that 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 would be the answer. But on if it, it was if you we were talking about two identical companies, hypothetically. One which was in a jurisdiction where you didn't get those tax advantages, then yeah, you're absolutely right. But there'll be some there'll be some companies that are that are that are worth worth that added cost, I guess. Yeah, I think that's and I think that's uh, Shane. You think about it the right way, mate. And what you're what you're really thinking about is um, what are the hurdles for worthwhile investment. I think that's exactly right. The reality is when we see net profit after tax in Australia or net income, the, the Yanks call it. You're seeing those numbers after all the taxes are paid anyway. And so the first thing is you're, you, know, you don't have to double I'll double count that tax, right? You're seeing those numbers. If you're investing for dividends, then you're absolutely right that those dividend, the dividend flows will be potentially impacted by tax credits. And you're absolutely right that if I get a, a 2% dividend from an Australian company, a 2% dividend from a US company, assuming the Australian business has franking credits, then it's worth more to me. So again, after tax, as Andrew says, absolutely spot on. Um, I invest in Berkshire Hathaway because I think Warren Buffett's going to reinvest those dividends himself without paying them to me and create much more capital value. And I think Berkshire Hathaway will outperform other companies I could invest in in Australia. And so that's a very simple after-tax share price-wise. That you know the market will value those shares more highly because of those reinvested profits than if those money money was paid out to me and then I did something else with it. Or really simple example, I'll straight up, I'd rather own Berkshire than Commonwealth Bank, right? And so. Berkshire will pay more tax and won't pay dividends. Commonwealth Bank will pay tax and and will give me some dividends. Those dividends are tax effective. If I line the two up and say in 10 years time, if I add the capital growth and the dividends together, which investment will be more attractive? Now, I might be wrong, by the way. It could be Commonwealth Bank. But my view is simply that I think I will be richer investing in Berkshire than in CBA. Um, there's loss making companies out there there's other other businesses that make profit but reinvest all those profits in growth in which case the, the shell doesn't see them as dividends in which case the tax rate doesn't actually matter as much I hope that makes sense or if it does matter mm. you know you can still do very well after paying all that tax a really good example is and, and you, you and I don't love mining companies Andrew but BHP's actually done pretty well share price wise over, over long periods of time mm. and it not only pays corporate tax but it pays uh, resource rents as it should 
but the tax burden for BHP is higher than the tax burden on per dollar of revenue than Woolworths, for example. Mm. Um, I don't know if BHP's been Woolies over the medium term. It probably has, I think, if I was going to speculate, but I won't bother looking it up. Um, just because BHP pays more tax doesn't make it a worse investment necessarily. There are some things we don't like about miners, by the way. Not as a company line, Andrew, I don't work for the same company, but we have a similar view on miners. Um, I own some Fortescue shares, by the way. Um, but, you know, that, that, that simple reality of how much tax is payable is interesting. But the question is really how much is left after all the taxes are paid and what can an investor make mm. of them? And that's why I'm just talking about the after-tax returns. Yep. Is that a fair summary, mate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's, you're absolutely right to factor that in, but you've just... You, yeah. it, it, there'll be very... Very clearly, there'll be some times where it's just totally worth that extra extra burden because yeah. the, quali- the quality and yep. return potential is that much more significant. Yep. And other times it's not, by the way. If you get a if you get a fully frank dividend from from a company that's meaningfully meaningfully in excess of what you might get from the US dollar for dollar, to the two companies. If I if I can invest in CBA based in the US or CBA based in Australia, of course I would choose Australia because if nothing else was different other than the tax treatment, then mm. I'm mad to ignore it. So you're absolutely right, Shane. Um, but but. Don't put the don't put the cart in front of the horse because you're looking at after tax profits in the first instance, and then you're looking at dividends, which absolutely should inc- include franking credits. But the same thing here, right? There are businesses in Australia that don't pay any any franking because they don't pay a lot of tax or any tax. Sydney Airport mm. was a great one. Now no longer no longer listed. Let me spit that out. Um, just to be paid, it, you know, it, it, it took a whole lot of debt. It hardly had any taxable profits. Still paid out truckloads of dividends. Um, they weren't franked because there was no profit to do, but the, the dividends were quite nice and the, the business did pretty well. As, <laughs> pre-COVID at least, um, mm. as, a, as a listed business. Uh, Shane says, P.S. It is a massive myth that taxes are substantially higher in Australia than in the USA. Best look at government spending as a percent of GDP for the real answer. Oh, man, that's a can of worms. American investors are almost always double taxed or triple taxed on earnings because federal and state corporate taxes are not deductible by the individual investor in a public company. Thank Paul Keating for this, quote, advantage Australia, end quote. Uh, I think you've uh, you, you've joined the rant team, Shane. Well done. You've jumped on your own high horse, and we appreciate that. Uh, I completely agree. By the way, I think dividend imputation is is super smart, uh, super useful. It was um, it, it was a really important change. I think it's the right change for Australia. I will say, by the way, for all of the, everything you just said, Shane, the challenge for Australian uh, GDP and t- tax the share of GDP is that in the hands of a lot of super investors, for example, will pay zero tax. Um, those that money that those probably aren't taxed at all because there's no tax paid by the company because it's rebated to the individual investor. And I'm not sure, entirely sure that BHP or Woolies or anyone else should be paying no tax right through the uh, the, the, the income flow on their, their earnings. So I think it goes both ways and we do have some problems with our tax system as well, uh, but we'll leave that for a whole other day unless you feel compelled to jump in, Ram. Oh, it's such a can of worms. <laughs> I, I would just say philosophically, <laughs> I'm, I'm aligned with the camp of simple is better. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's <laughs> leave it at that. Let's move on. Mitch says, gents, long-time listener, first-time caller. Thank you for calling, Mitch. Uh, Scott, okay. can you please do an episode on shorting? Oh, I'm not sure we'll do a whole episode. One stock of mine is the second most shorted on the ASX. According to shortman.com.au, he says in brackets, not to be confused with strawman.com.au. <laughs> Very This different. is somewhat annoying, he says, as I feel as though growth is being restricted. When is a short position called? What is stopping me from shorting all the companies on the ASX and then doing a runner to a non-extradition country? <laughs> he puts the uh, laughing, crying face. Um, <laughs> it's a really interesting topic. I know Scott has previously mentioned that he'd banned short selling. Yes. But Ram had some good counterpoints regarding the market. 
wouldn't say good. I'd say barely passable. But fair <laughs> enough. Hopefully, this can be a separate episode or shortened to a question. We might do that if that's okay. Thanks, guys. You both provide superb advice for free. I've paid for worse advice and received worse <laughs> results from these paid services. So thank you both. Regards. We do offer a full run- refund, of course. Yes, exactly. Every, every every dollar you've ever paid for this podcast to, directly to us. I don't know if you paid someone else. That's your problem, not mine. Uh, all right, let's get back to uh, let's get back to this, mate. Um, mm. Oh, man, so let's let's. I'll, I'll take his I'll take his questions almost in order. We'll try and shorten up our answers and see if we can get through them. One stock of mine is the second most shorted stock. He says I, this is somewhat annoying, as I feel as though growth is being restricted. Is it, Andrew? No, not at all. Um, growth in the share price, maybe if there's enough people shorting it, which just means they're borrowing the shares off someone else and mm-hmm. then selling it with a yep. promise to pay them back in the future, and yep. they'll do that by closing their short. That is, they'll. They'll buy the shares back and then mm-hmm. and uh, hand them back to the person they borrowed them off, mm-hmm. and they'll pocket the mm-hmm. difference. So yep. the idea is, I sell at a dollar, I buy back at fifty cents. Yep. You've still got your shares. I've paid you a bit of interest or, or carry along the way, mm-hmm. and I get I get to if effectively buy at fifty and sell at a dollar. I'm just I'm just doing it in reverse order. Yep. Yep. Uh, and yeah, yeah, people pay attention to this. There's some good sites out there. Short man will tell you exactly what the most heavily shorted stocks are. So it's Flight Center, Betmakers, Nanasonics, the top three. And they'll actually tell you the percentage of their, their shares outstanding that are shorted. Mm-hmm. So 17% of all the shares on issue for Flight Center God, are short it. sold. <laughs> it's a big short business. Sold. So it's, not, it's not a small company. You'll love this, mate. Kogan's yep. 9%. It's oh, up there as well. That. I own shares. The, well, yeah, yeah, we get it. Well, I'll, I'll, I say that I say that not to pick on you because that's like yes, number six yes, or seven. <laughs> Nanasonics is number three, right? And I've got some shares in Nanasonics. There we so. go. That's better. That's better. There you go. The natural order is restored. Uh, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, uh, it's been there before. Uh, it, the, what I do, I, I think it is noteworthy. I wouldn't be, I'm not the kind of investor that just dismisses it out of hand. Yeah. I think the, the mistake is when people go, oh, it's short. There's something wrong. Therefore, I need to yeah. get out. Yeah. I think for me, it's my, oh, it's really short why what's the what's the short thesis here i, I want to as charlie munger says i want to understand the short thesis better than the bears <laughs> you know i really want to understand it and and take it seriously and stress test it because if they're right that well i'm wrong <laughs> i don't want to be wrong um what i will say and i've never done any long-term statistical analysis on it but anecdotally it seems like it's a pretty poor signal and okay. you've got some companies in there that you kind of look at and go, yep, makes yeah. sense. I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. <laughs> exactly. And then you've got others that mm-hmm. are just really weird. I'll pick on Nanasonics only because I know it fairly well. Mm-hmm. And you think, wow, the 2,000-odd stocks in the market and of all of these really smart <laughs> hedge funds, this is the third favorite one that they've got mm-hmm. a short. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, what's going on with this? Are they, are they losing money? No. Very profitable company. In fact, they've dampened their profitability with a lot of investment in, in new products. Hmm. Um, do they have a really weak balance sheet? No, nah, they've got like $90 million in cash sitting there. <laughs> it's a fortress of a balance sheet. You know, they could they could they could run the next, you know, three years probably without without making a cent and still pay all their bills. So you kind of get to the and you sort of look into it, and it's it's probably that that the shortest felt as though the stock was a little bit overvalued. And that the market will correct. Mm. Now, for my money, I'm not a short seller full stop, but for my money, that is an incredibly <laughs> risky play. Mm. There's a guy called John Hampton, uh, a lot of people will know, who's a, he's a pretty accomplished short seller in the Australian market, well-regarded mm. overseas. Mm. Um, and he short sells, but he's, short, he's shorting on the premise that this company is a fraud and it's going to go to zero. And I have some sympathy with that. I actually, I actually feel as though it's, there's, there's some societal good in exposing these, these horrible companies that are frauds. Mm. But at least if you're right, 
you get you get some decent upside. <laughs> if I'm making a bet on a company because I feel as though right, it's a little bit right. overvalued in the market, yeah. it's like, well, maybe. Mm-hmm. How much? Does that mean that the shares might fall 20% or so and mm-hmm. maybe I pocket a little bit of difference? That's nice. The trouble is, is that the market can remain, even if you're right, the market can remain irrational for a long period of time. Yeah. And how many times have you or I looked at a stock and thought, yeah, pretty decent <laughs> business, but it's expensive, and then yeah, exactly. it triples, right? And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. and as you, you, you're fond of saying, which is absolutely correct, you can only double your money without leverage mm-hmm. with a short. Mm-hmm. At uh, my absolute most. Absolutely. At the absolute most. Because um, it, it can go from whatever it is to zero. Yep. But, but the, ups, the, the loss is infinite because it could mm-hmm. go up 10x, 100x, 1,000x, a million x. Now, mm-hmm. you know, practically that's not going to happen, but it could. Um, so it's just a very again asymmetric bet yep. on what the market is, is that the market is going to eventually mm-hmm. agree with you or actually not even eventually because the trouble with shorting is I said you've got to pay money for the carry you've got to pay money mm-hmm. to sort of borrow the shares off someone else so it's like the longer you hold the more painful it becomes you not not only need to be right but you need to be right fairly soon. Um, so yeah, it's 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 crazy. I've I've ranted so far off the original point. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> So I'll just that's, stop. That's, that's, I'll, in, that's, in, that's in our contract. We have to do that. So we have to do fill, that. You fill the terms of the contract. No, you're so right. So I'll, um, I'll very, 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 very quickly summarize. <laughs> Pay attention to it, but then ask yourself why and see if you're comfortable with that. And you've done a wonderful job of that. So I'm going to go back to Mitch's question just very quickly. Um, is growth being restricted? Andrew Lurie said yes in the short term because if there's a whole lot of people borrowing to sell the shares, then it is going to potentially push the price down. There's an abundance of selling pressure lots of people want to sell not many people want to buy it's going to push the price down let, so that, let me just very very quickly yes, clarify that growth in the share price yes that's right so, yes. the business zero, zero yeah. impact yeah okay. correct correct uh, unless you're trying to raise money which is a whole i have no very little sympathy for someone whose entire business model is based on raising more money from this for the market hopefully good prices that's just roulette so don't do that uh, so yeah it may it may restrict company growth if if that was the business model but other than that yep share price only absolutely um is it being restricted? Yes. Is it is it weighing on sentiment? Yes. Uh, I I've said before I would ban it because I think it ends up with retail investors getting freaked out and losing money. Uh, but to Andrew's point, at a, at a very rational, at a purely rational level, if every investor in the market was hyper rational, I actually would have no issue with shorting. Ironically, because it is just a, a, a part. Um, uh, you know, it, it's the other side of the same transaction. When is a short called? I don't know, Ram. Actually, does does the lender of the shares have any right to call the short in? I don't know what the actual. I've never done. I've never dug into it because I've never had any interest in it. Yeah, yeah, I don't think yeah. so. I think you're probably okay. you're probably entering into a contract where you say, oh, I, I don't know. There's yeah. probably a, a certain lockup period. So, Mitch, basically, for all intents and purposes, you have to you have to pay interest to borrow those shares, and most people who lend those shares will simply allow you to continue to roll it over because they like owning the company. They're happy to make the money on the on the mm-hmm. trade while you while you're while they're lending them to someone else. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, what is stopping me from shorting all the companies and then doing a runner to a non-extradition country? Uh, the same thing that's stopping you from robbing banks and running, doing a runner to a non-extradition country. The chance you might get caught. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you, you, I mean, look, you, you've got to find. You have to find a. Uh, someone who's prepared to, to finance the trade, you would be the, officially the counterparty risk uh, and whether someone would let you do that, uh, borrow all those shares without without creditworthiness and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of the same, same thing. What, what would stop me borrowing money to buy my house and go to another country? Um, the answer would be I've still got to sell the assets at some point and get the money across and all that kind of stuff. I know you're kidding, uh, but it's, it's, it's kind of the same sort of thing. Um, that's it. Thank you, Mitch. Well done. Good questions, mate. Really appreciate it. Um, yeah. But really, really quickly, 
I would happily lend my Berkshire Hathaway shares to a short seller if they wanted to borrow them because I'm going to own them for 40, 50 years. And if I get to keep the shares and make some money from interest on the way through, then <laughs> zero downside for me. I'd be mad not to just do it for the hell of it because, you know, that just seems like a fun idea of easy way to make money where I'm not ever going to sell the shares. Um, but, you know, there might be a circumstance where I had to let them out that I wanted to sell them and I couldn't because someone else had possession of them. But otherwise, you know, and you can make money doing that, by the way. I think some of the brokers do let you lend those shares out. It's just over, overly complicated, not necessary. So we'll keep going. Mm -hmm. um, Matt's got some key questions here for us, mate. Love the show, he says. I've learned a lot from you both and I'm grateful for the time you spend making the podcast. It is our pleasure, Matt. My question is this, he says. To date, I don't think I've ever heard you discuss the use of a stop loss. Ah, Matt, you haven't been around long enough. Why not? Surely as any sort of investor, you want to have the big wins and small losses. I know that to have a profitable investment, you have to take a contrary position to the market. He says in brackets, and I know Amazon fell 90%. But dot, 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 dot. At what point does perseverance become stupidity? I'm going to assume you don't mean that personally, Matt. I, I mean, no one wants a 90% loss. I don't want a 50% loss or even a 25% loss. Surely a capital preservation model is the most sensible model of investing. Setting stop losses and getting stopped out means that deciding to invest in that stock at that time was the wrong investment decision. It does not mean the stock is not worth investing in just that the timing was off. My portfolio would be in a much better health if I had set stop losses at 10 or 15% and been stopped out of falling stocks instead of following them down to the bottom, not wanting to admit I was wrong. This may mean blurring the line between trading and investing, but surely it is a blurred line. Love to hear your thoughts. That's from Matt. He says, Matt in Adelaide. G'day to our Adelaide listeners and g'day to Matt in particular. Um, Matt, I'll share this with you. Matt uh, includes a, uh, a, a pop culture reference from the uh, late 80s, early 90s in his email address, which I know you'll appreciate, Andrew, so I will share that with you later. But Matt, just a quick head nod to that one, mate. Well done. Um, I'm going to grab this one first, Matt. So here's the thing. Uh, you have to, So investing is putting a small amount of money aside now for hopefully more money, maybe hopefully a lot more money in the future. And you don't know what the squiggly line is going to look like between those two points. So let me, let me give you an example. Let's say a stock goes from 15 to 10 and then goes back to 20. And let's say you have your stop loss set at 10. Well, getting stopped out at the very bottom would be a crazy idea. And then you say, well, but I would buy shares back again. Okay, then why set the stop loss in the first place? And so it kind of becomes this, this weird, to use Andrew's phrase, which I love, it's, it's, it's lovely kind of, you know, one of those weird things you can never quite define, turtles all the way down. So I'd set a stop loss at 15%. Okay, well, it falls 15%. And then when do you buy back in? Well, when it goes down 25%. Well, what if it doesn't? Well, then you don't buy back in and then it goes up to a million and then you go, bugger, I should have done it. Now, if it goes down 10%, I'll buy it 12% down. Well, then hold on because the 2% is no different. Well, if it falls in half, I'll sell it. Well, really? Well, are you going to buy back if it falls in half? Is that attractive value then? Um, the, 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 ironically, the answer to these questions, like many of them, is it comes down to human behavior. Um, yeah, your Amazon example is literally Domino's is a wonderful example I've used that a lot of times um, I desperately desperately hope given Andrew's already mentioned it that Kogan will be a fantastic example but I might be wrong I might be wrong um, it, it's just so if you think through the, the thing if you literally write on a piece of paper the steps that are required so you buy a shares at, at X they go down to some amount and you have a stop loss when do you buy back in? And, and when are you actually going to do it, right? So when do you think you should and when are you actually going to? Two different things. We've talked about the COVID crash before, right? I kept buying during COVID crash, even though I hated it because I knew I had to. Most people didn't. And not because I'm a superhero, just because I've been doing this for a very long time and I just knew that I had to be disciplined and keep doing it because it just, it hurts, but that's what you have to do. Um, but when would I have bought back in? 
at what price? How far would it have fallen? And if, if I'm going to buy in at that lower price, then there's no need to stop it out in the first place. If the bottle's broken, if the, if the thesis is broken, then you don't buy back in, you don't need a stop loss to tell you that. And the share price isn't telling you that, right? That's the other thing. If, if Kogan sucks, if Kogan's business is fundamentally flawed, right? It's fundamentally flawed at $9 and $5 and $3 and whatever, however further it falls. And if it goes back to $8, it's still fundamentally flawed. The, the, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a sh- the share price, a bit like the shorting, right? Andrew's point before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shorting tells you what the market thinks. The, the share price tells you what the market thinks, not what's actually, what the value actually is. So it, stop loss is one of those things that instinctively makes common sense, first order impact. When you think about the second and third order impacts, the decisions you have to make, all the stuff that goes with it, um, it, it just that's where it gets too hard because in hindsight, we all go, oh, I should have sold that earlier. At the time, you tell me how much further it's going to fall first and then tell me when you get a buyback in, tell me why. And generally that kind of gets to the whole, oh, well, maybe... And if you want to, if you, if you will do it, if you're, the, if you're the exception of the rule, a bit like margin lending, if you are genuinely the exception of the rule and knock yourself out. But 90% of us think we're above average drivers. So be careful. Mm. Your thoughts, Ram? I hate them. I hate stop loss <laughs> orders. What do you really think? So what do you much. really think? Why do you hate them? I, 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 for all the reasons you said, but more than anything, <laughs> and it's more. because. And apologies. No, like no, no, no stockbrokers are listening. So, I, <laughs> gloves are off. <laughs> Bloody stockbrokers love them. Why do they love them? Uh-huh. If you're Scott and you buy your Berkshire Hathaway <laughs> shares and you pop them in the bottom drawer for 10 years, you are the worst client in the world. Like, yeah. I don't make any money off you. I make like $20 <laughs> my trade and then you just, yeah. just yeah. you're a, you're a yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. you're an annoyance. <laughs> Who do I love? I love the guy who's in, out, in, out, up. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I'm trading yeah. a thousand yeah. times because I'm making, I'm he's paying, he's putting my kids through school, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the client I want. So who's the biggest advocate for stop loss orders? Stockbrokers. <laughs> And how do they sell that idea to you? You can have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. You get all the upside. Oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> Buy this share. You're going to make, oh, but if you're wrong, you only, you only, you only have, you know, you can uh, cap out at 5%. Yeah. So a little, little bit of, here's the trouble. In, pract- in, in practice, even if you take away their misguided incentives, <laughs> the trouble is, is you die the death of a thousand cuts. Yeah. You might only lose 5%, but because, you know what? Shares are volatile. Yeah. The best highest quality businesses that will be around for the next million years are still volatile. Mm. Find the best performing share on the ASX over the last 5, 10, 20 years. It was volatile. And if you had set a 5% stop loss on that, Mm -hmm. you would have been stopped out a million times. So A, you would have missed out on all of the gains. B, you just would have just buy it and sold, buy and sold. There's brokerage around that. There's tax considerations Mm -hmm. around that. There's all of this other kind of stuff. And to your point, Scott, by the time you you go, oh, well, I just get back in. Well, generally speaking, by the time you've gotten back in, you've you've probably got in at a higher price than you sold out (laughs) to begin (laughs) with. I mean, how do you know when it's actually really reversed? They're an absolute con. And every time I say this, we get heaps of correspondence (laughs) and I get a lot of people get really, 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 really upset. Uh. And it's okay. It's okay for them to be wrong. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with, with this. But um, it's, it just doesn't work. It doesn't. And then someone will go, oh, but what happens on HIH insurance or what if on this? And like, yeah. here's the thing about the share market. You will always find an example that proves your point. <laughs> yeah, you will yeah. always find it. But, but a good scientist will say, well, no, it needs to be st- uh, statistically valid. Yep. And none of those examples are. I mean, I, I can find an example of throwing a dart at, at the financial review was the best investment strategy. Because yep. look, I did it once, and I end, end, ended up hitting with the bullseye. I don't know whatever stock's done really well, you know. And it, it just, it's silly. It really, really, really is silly. Don't do it. Here's the here's the other thing. If something has changed, 
It's not like when you have to sell your shares that you have to like climb a mountain with a backpack full of bricks, you know, and and execute yeah. this hard, complex problem at the time. <laughs> you, you pull out your phone, you yeah. press three buttons and you're out, right? So don't automate your thinking in that way. Mm-hmm. If, if, if something has happened, and hopefully it's not just the price that's fallen down because the price is a terrible short-term signal. These are, these yep. are, these are just volatile assets. Mm. If something has fundamentally changed and you've lost conviction, pull out your phone and press sell. Yeah. Why do you need to automate that? But for? not based like, on price, to be really clear to your point. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's right. That's right. Like, oh, oh the, the CFO has run off to Jamaica with all of the, okay, that's a bad thing. I want to get, you know, <laughs> the thesis is broken, I'm out, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I can't, I can't, I can't say it any clearer. They are so alluring. Um, and then you get, by the way, there's 400 flavors of stop loss orders. There's trailing stop loss orders. There's adjustable blah, blah, blah. So, you know, all of these super, super tricky things. Mm, and they are mm, just mm. a mechanism invented by stockbrokers to take more money out of your pocket. Yep. Full stop. That's exactly what they are. <laughs> don't do it. Yep. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Hello, Scott and Andrew. This is from it's the world's longest question. We have to sub, uh, sub this. Actually, there's not even a name on it. There you go. So I can't even I can't even say thank you for the question. Uh, question says, "Hello, Scott and Andrew. Thank you both for the oh, Matt here. Here we go. He says uh, after that, uh, thank you both for the last nine and a half years. I Matt here, haha, full style." Um, started from somewhere. Some of our authors will say when they were writing in the first. Like, Hi, I Scott here. I wanted to talk to you today about such and such. So he's um, he's he's up in the full style. Thank you, Matt. I Matt here started following Share Advisor in January 2013, and Andrew's dividend investor service too. Later, I also joined Doc's EO service. I wanted to share my long-term results with you both. My top two ASX best stocks that I currently hold are both stocks you recommended long ago. Can you guess what they are? Do you want to have a, Do you want to have a punt just for the fun of it, Andrew? One, one's from you. And one's one from me. Oh gosh! I'll dividend investor stock from way back. The very first recommendation. No, was not the very Van first. Hospital. An old one. No, no, oh. no one. Oh. An old one. Well, when you were around, I, I, I'm completely blank. I'm completely okay, blank. Okay, so my best is Altium, up 365%, bought in 2016. Mm. It was recommended by Andrew and Dividend Investor. Second best is ResMed, up 335%, which Scott recommended. My third best is also a Scott stock, Corporate Travel, up 216% since 2014. That's very kind of you, Matt. Thank you. We should add that, you know, um, mileage may vary and future isn't the same as the past and all those usual disclaimers, but uh, glad you've made some money from us. That's good. Thank you both for years of knowledge entertainment too. Uh, my question is how do you record your total portfolio performance if you constantly add money to your portfolio every month that's a good question I mean if I, my total share portfolio was 100 bucks, then I added $10 worth of stocks at the end of the month the portfolio is now $110 but my stocks didn't really go up in 10% value does that make sense it sure does mm-hmm. I have a way to do it am I right when I started my portfolio, I divided my portfolio into $20,000, hypothetically, he says, into 20 mat stocks of $1,000 each. Then when I want to add more money, I check the total value at the time. Let's say it went up 50%, 30 grand. And then one of my 20 mat stocks are now worth $1,500. Then I buy a new stock by adding 1500 bucks and increasing the total mat stock accordingly. So he's basically he's trying to hold the position sizes the same and increasing them so that he's not, uh, he, he's putting the, the amount he adds basically into his cost space, which, is, which makes perfect sense. Um, he said, does it all make sense? It probably, it's probably confusing and maybe unnecessary, but it works for me. It's kind of like my own self-managed ETF. It is. It's kind of like using a, a unit price for a, for a fund. What do you guys think? How do you actually think about or calculate the total value and performance of your portfolio? Thanks again. Here's to the next 10 years. PS, he says, by my calculations, my total portfolio performance 
is 8% per annum on today's data. My 10-year annualized performance has been tracking about 15% before this year's huge falls. Time to buy into my own fund, I think. Oh, Matt's trying to knock us off our pedestals and uh, take over from us. Uh, your thoughts, mate. Um, is, is, the, is the dividing it all up by the number of positions, by the position size, a, a useful approach? It is to a point, but the trouble is what what these things miss is the value of time. Yeah. So let's say that you and I both did that and except that your first investment was in 1993 yeah. and mine was yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Like we'll, 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 we'll have the same percentage return on yeah. that on that calculus, yeah, right. but yeah. who's done better? Well, I, yeah. you know, I only had to wait a day. You had to wait mm-hmm. however long that is, you know, 30 yeah. years or so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hypothetically. Hypothetically. I, I, I'd be very good, obviously much better, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it gets complicated. Um, yeah. What you want to do is Google um, what they call a money-weighted return, mm-hmm. or you can do a time-weighted return. There's, there's, fund managers and academics have been very busy <laughs> over the years to come up with thousands of different ways <laughs> exactly. to measure. And and by the yeah, way, there's 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 no one right way. Yeah. Um, there's just what factors you want to emphasize more. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for what it's worth, my personal preference is a money weighted return. So it looks mm-hmm. at. It, it, it tries to factor in the the weight of money. If I put $10,000 into the market, um, well, let's say I put $1,000 into the market a year ago mm. and it does a certain performance, then I put $10,000 in um, yesterday, you know, it's it, it's going to distort things just by the sheer yeah. volume of money. That's, that's it's, if, if, I, yeah. if I just do a normal calculation on that, it's- If you had a 50% return on your first $1,000, but a 1% return on your next $10,000, the average return is not 24.5%. It's absolutely not. I need, I need, thank you. That's a much better yeah. way of explaining it. So, so Google that. You'll find a whole bunch of stuff on Wikipedia, and you can do the calculation yourself. Yeah. You know where I'm going with this, don't you, Scott? I'm going to give. I do. I'm going to, I'm going to give my usual plug. plug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I do it because I like the guys. I do yeah. it because I use it personally, and I also do it because we've got an affiliation agreement, which means <laughs> that if you sign up through through us, we we get um, a little bit of cash, like yeah, yeah. twenty bucks or something. It's not Fair huge, enough. but anyway, yep. um, go go to strongman.com forward slash blog. You'll see one of the articles there, which is manage your portfolio in style with share site we'll give you four months free and it should it will, we'll do it all for say, you um you don't pay any more to use andrew's link by the way oh no 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 yeah you, you just get so a discount andrew gets the money from share site uh but it doesn't cost you anything extra so the idea here is that they get a they get a, yep. a new client yep. i get a little bit of cash and you get yep. four months off so it's it's yeah that's how it works everyone wins it's the only one we've got mate and we've right. turned down a lot of stuff and the reason yeah. was it's just i'm just a fan and and I am because it means that it does all of this for me. And then at the end <laughs> exactly. of the year, I just press a button and I hand that to my accountant or I do my tax myself. It's just so super easy. And it, just, yeah. and it, it allows me to cut through all of these ins and outs and dividends and capital restructures and all this stuff that makes it a real nightmare and just does it automatically for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I like shares. I use shares. I have for years. It's expensive. It's completely worth it. Uh, more for tax reporting than anything. Mm-hmm. Um <sighs> I uh, so my my only addition, mate. You've you've done a spectacular job as always. My only addition is probably just I wouldn't over obsess about the performance to the nth degree for its own sake, and I want to be careful that like it's important to 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 make sure you're actually beating the market, and you're getting a good return, and that like that is that is really useful and really important. So for sure, um, I actually quite like the way you're doing it, Matt. If you're going to, I like the idea of like turning it in per unit. Um, I would I would do it reverse. I'd actually I'd actually charge you to add more units rather than dividing up the, the value of each unit. But it's neither here nor there. It's exactly the same maths. Um, so I like it. I just wouldn't wouldn't overthink it, quite honestly. Um, but be, be yeah, 
as, as we say many, many times, be roughly right rather than precisely wrong, right? So find something that works. If this works for you, then go for it. Um, if you're doing roughly what the market's doing, fantastic. You'll know, you'll know if you're doing meaningfully more or meaningfully less, as long as you don't screw up the maths when you do the calculations. And that's kind of what you need to do, right? Because if you're doing roughly the same as the market and you're enjoying it, then go for it. If you're doing, if you're doing you know, meaningfully worse than the market, I would probably not do it at all. And if you're doing meaningfully better than the market, then keep, keep going, knock yourself out. Um, otherwise, as always, the ETF option is there for you and pretty attractive and pretty useful and a really nice bogey to chase, right? Um, but Chestnut will do those maths for you as well, by the way. You can put a, you can put an index in, or not index, it's an index tracking ETF, but same idea. Uh, you can kind of you know, track your own returns. It, for me, it's the relative performance rather than the absolute performance that matters, which is just simply, am I, am I, doing, am I adding value by doing this? Um, if I'm not, then I better be enjoying it because I'm, I'm losing to the market. It's costing me money. And if I am, then fantastic. Um, or if I'm not, I can go and buy an ETF and go from there. But yep, love it. Um, in terms of doing your own fund, I'm just going to say it's harder than you might imagine, Matt. So put the for what it's worth. Here's one from Steve. Hi, Scott and Ram. Firstly, thank you for all the amazing content you put out on the podcast machine. It is our pleasure. I've listened for a good few years now and they remain a key milestone in my week. Thank you. My question is around discounted cash flows. Oh, once such a great thing to talk about an audio podcast. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding, Steve. Uh, over the years, I've built multiple different models with a range of forecast assumptions to generate a fair value estimate as part of my investing due diligence. My question is, when you come run a company through a model, if you had to pick the key assumptions, what would you use? As you've mentioned many times, less is more. We just said that. But I'd be interested to hear how much less Thanks again for everything you do for the community from Steve. Steve, you're very welcome, mate. And thanks for the kind words. Uh, we do it because we love it. We do it because we're trying to help people. Um, so if it's if it's valuable and helping, then that's that's awesome. Thank you. Um, mate, I'm going to try desperately to describe a DCF in words, and then I'm going to ask you for the assumptions, and then I'll add some of my own. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So here's, here's, here's two things. When you buy any asset, you should be buying that asset based on the future value of the asset. You want to be higher rather than lower. Right? We all know that. Uh, you want to make some money from it. And the most, the simplest example is, let, let's use the neighborhood cafe because it's just easy. If I've got to pay, I'll say $100,000 to buy the cafe, I want to get more than that back if an, over the life of my ownership of the asset. Combination of what, uh, what cash I can pull out of the, 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 the cafe and eventually maybe how much I can sell it for. And if you're doing a discounted cash flow, you're basically trying to say to yourself, okay, well, if I pay $100 for the cafe, how much money am I going to get every year to compare whether or not I paid a decent price for that cafe. If, I'm, if I pay 100 grand, I'm getting $1,000 a year in, in cash flow, I've probably been dudded. If I pay $100,000, I get 50 grand a year out of that cafe. Well, I'm doing pretty bloody well. Now, those are easy numbers. But what, what's, the, what's the kind of the fair value to use Steve's question? And so a discounted cash flow says, firstly, let's do the cash flow bit. Let's just work out over some extended period of time, what cash flows am I likely to get every year? Is it going to be one grand a year, five grand a year, 10 grand a year, 100 grand a year? How much cash am I going to be able to take out of the business every year? So that's the cash flow bit. Or, or just very, very quickly, it, it might, won't be even. You might assume, well, it's a thousand in year one, and then I get five thousand in year two, oh, and sorry, then yes, you know, yes, yep. yes, per, right. per year over the future. You're right. Thank you. That's not not necessarily the same number. Second thing is the discounted bit, which is just simply a way of saying, if you give me a thousand dollars now, I'll take it. If you say I promise to give you a thousand dollars in forty five years time, I'll say. Well, it's not very exciting to me because by then I know inflation will be up and my income will be up and my assets will be larger and it's just simply not worth it. Oppor- opportunity cost, like right, foregone. Right. You know, you could use that money for something else in the meantime. So if Andrew said to me, "Look, Scott, if you give me nine hundred bucks now, I'll give you thousand dollars back in a year's time," I'm like, "Yeah, sure, I'll do that as long as I trust him, as long as I think the cash flow is going to come in." And that's the, there is a question which we'll get to in a minute. But yeah, I'll, I'd do that. If Andrew said, "Mate, I'll, I'll give you thousand dollars in forty-five years' time. How much money would you give me now for that?" Now, I haven't done the numbers, so I don't know what the answer would be. But I'm going to say I'll give you one hundred and fifty bucks. If you give me $1,000 back in, in 40 years' time, why? 
Because if I had 150 bucks now, I could invest that money, the opportunity cost Andrew talks about, and say, well, I can, I can, I can turn that into something larger myself. Why would I give him that money or wait that long for a return I can get myself? And simply just inflation is going to eat that away, right? So by definition, if I give you $1,000 now, you give it back to me in five years' time, particularly, particularly where inflation is at the moment, it's going to be worth a whole lot less. So the idea of discounted cash flow, it's a model to put all those moving parts into one sing, simple, I was going to say simple, it's relatively simple, um, spreadsheet and, and try and assess a fair value for an asset. Have I done an okay job of kind of describing the what and the why, Andrew? You have, and if if people's heads are spinning, don't feel bad. If, <laughs> Sorry, if, if they are, no. Well, it, it just it does. I mean, it's yeah. like I think when you, you get used to it over yeah. many many years of thinking about it, and you, you, yeah. I I still remember the first time the concept was laid out. <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah, and so yeah, it, totally, it, it is. Totally. It is a. It is it takes a bit to get your head around, but I would. Yeah. I would spend the mental effort and time to get comfortable mm-hmm. with the concept because it's a fundamental concept yeah, in investing. Important. Yes, it's so yeah, important. It, yes. In fact, the, the, the Yet, outputs are far less important than actually going through the process so you understand what goes into it because that's that's where most of the value yeah. is for mine. Do you agree? I think that's where the, that, that's the danger of it is that people start to there's a there's, it's an incredibly value valuable mental model which is sort of the, the word of <laughs> yeah, yeah. the era people love but it is it, it, but people take mm-hmm. it can, can sometimes you forget that you know the map is not the territory and that you will you <laughs> will like sort of uh, you know start to assume that yeah, your yeah. model is is reality <laughs> uh, and people can get hyper specific one of the things you've got to understand with this approach is that you can change a few parameters by a relatively small amount oh, will give you a yeah. radically different answer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that's why you kind of got to be. It, so so why am I saying is it's super valuable if it if it can <laughs> lead to a bunch of rubbish? And the old saying is garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. I think it's super valuable because it forces you to understand deeply what is value when it comes to mm. productive cash producing assets. Value is the one that's going to ju- re- generate the, the highest amount of cash flows adjusted for time, adjusted for risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it's super, super important as a concept. And it's also super valuable because just playing around with it will force you to think about various things. How fast is the company mm-hmm. going to grow? What are the risks and how, how much, how severely should I discount those future cash flows? So they're all really, really important concepts. Just that when you get to the end, don't, don't you know, oh, I think, <laughs> I think BHP is worth $32 and, you know, you go to 18 decimal places. Like, well, well no. Um, you want to be roughly right as opposed to specifically wrong. Mm. Um, so all of that, all of that is is all just to say, get onto the Google machine and Google it and and think about it and play around in some Excel spreadsheets and mm. you you know it's it's just fun. <laughs> I would say maybe I'm a bit of a no, but it'll 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 really it'll really take your investing to the next level. Again, not the output per se, but the process and the thinking that's behind it. Mm. Um, out of all of that, what's the most important thing? Um, well, there's probably two. One is the growth rate of the earnings that you assume. Mm. The, the higher the growth rate, the higher the, the, the value that, that you will get. So if a company is earning 100000 this year, then 200 then 400 it's just like it's an early stage Apple where it's just you know, <laughs> earnings are going parabolic. Mm. That's obviously going to give you a very high value. If you've got a, mm. value, uh, a company whose earnings are stagnant or maybe growing at 2 or 3%, 
by definition, you're going to get a much lower value. So that the growth rate is, is hyper important. By the way, that's why we had such stratospheric valuations for so many of these internet growth stocks not too long ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, they look sort of insane when you sort of quote them on a PE basis. Well, <laughs> PE of 900, are you like, it's actually not that insane if, and it's the hugest if in the world, if the, this company is going to grow like the clappers for, for an extended period of time. Um, but that's why it's why it's important to think about growth. Um, The other one is the discount rate. So, Mm -hmm. so what do I discount it by? You you said before, if I'm going to pay a thousand dollars to you next year, you might be prepared to pay a hundred dollars, a nine hundred dollars. So you've discounted that by ten percent. You're saying if I can get a ten percent return, it's a little bit more on my nine hundred dollars. I'll do it. I'll, I will. I'll give you. I will. I will. I will give you that nine hundred dollars because I mm. getting a thousand dollars back equates to more. What's about eleven percent return? Yeah. My combination um, of how, how risky I think you are to pay back, the sort of return I'm looking for, the opportunities I have elsewhere. I'm prepared yep. to get a ten percent return from you based on the fact I think you're pretty trustworthy. I think a ten percent would be a good return. I don't think I can get more elsewhere by putting that money to work. So I'm happy to I'm happy to value my future thousand dollars at nine hundred dollars today. Yep. And that's actually a really good way. The the way you want to think about it is exactly that. You want to look at it on a comparative basis. If we're in an environment where you can really search high and low and the best investments you can find are probably giving you four or 5%, 10% return looks fantastic. Mm. You know, and, and again, all else being equal, if you consider me a reasonably low risk proposition, Mm. um, that's going to be very hard to go by. If on the other hand, I'm a 'er ne'er-do-well drug dealing bum <laughs> that you know ne- never has two cents to my name then then that's a terrible investment you want more than 10% to to tempt you into that you'd probably want something like i don't know 80% or something because you you're taking a huge amount of risk so what so let me let me wrap all of this up so when you're looking at a potential investment you want to see how is it going to grow by and what risks are associated with that some people, and this is why people talk about risk-adjusted returns, it may be for a lot of, and it, there's no right or wrong, it's a personal choice, but for a lot of people, a very low risk 8% is far superior mm-hmm. to a high risk 20%. Because, yep. yeah, I could get 20%, yeah, but I might, right. I might not. <laughs> there's a lot of risk in, exactly. involved in this. Whereas, you know, it's the bird in the hand. So, um, I don't know, have I done a good job of outlining all of that? There's, done a great, they're the great, two, yeah, discount rate and, and growth. Yep. Are, the, are the big things, but definitely yep. think about the, the the maths because it it will help you understand mm-hmm. what invest what is important when it comes to investing and what is important, predicting future cash flows mm-hmm. and 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 understanding the risk that's around that. That's kind of a, a nice nutshell way of thinking about the whole game. Mate, you've done a spectacular job of summarising. So I'm not going to say what I'm going to include. I'm actually gonna, well, I'm going to add a couple of additional thoughts rather rather repeating what you said, which is perfect. First thing I would say is, I think. <sighs> I want to be careful how I say this. More, uh, less is more. But I also think one of the one of the great scales falling from the eyes moments, Damascene conversion moments I ever had was listening to one of our US colleagues, Bill Mann, who still works for the Motley Fool in the US, who said years ago he talked about a company. I don't, I think I might have been Alibaba. I can't remember what it was. Doesn't really matter. He said, based on the discounted cash flow he'd done, effectively the market was assuming zero after year five. And I want to break that down because. Most discounted cash flow models, I'm going to say most, mate, you may, you may disagree, I have a different view. Most discounted cash flow models go out five years. And people sort of say, well, I can, I can kind of roughly forecast out five years and then, and then I kind of don't really know what's going on. So then I'll assume it just grows at some arbitrary two, three, four percent rate. They're called the terminal value, some sort of permanent rate thereafter. And that is one where some of the greatest value creation for investors has been yeah. because of businesses that keep growing in year six, seven, eight, nine, ten at a really good rate. 
So yeah, there's there's companies out there, and and also too, humans are are obliged almost almost by virtue of humanity to to pull down those numbers pretty quickly. So let's say they go to business growth twenty percent this year. You'll kind of go at twenty percent. Okay, that's a lot, but it's a pretty impressive business. And then maybe next year it's going to go at fifteen. Then maybe it's thirteen. Then maybe at ten. And then maybe at five. And after that, three percent a year, right? And that's and that's that's a really conservative normal way to do it. Then you look at Amazon or Google or Apple or I don't know if the case of Alibaba in the end, but whatever. At year five, they're not going from 20% growth in year one to 3% in year five or year six. Now, they are special companies, don't get me wrong. But when people have underestimated future values of companies by doing exactly that, by kind of going, well, I can't assume it's going to grow for that level of forever because that just seems like... Um, uh, it's not got abandonment of, of any sort of responsibility or, or, or you know, conservatism. Of course, I'm going to grow that fast. So I'll, I'll bring it down. And so for me, I'll just say extending the discounted cash flows from five years to 10, I think is a useful way to think about it. Not because it's magic, just because it kind of makes you think about that next half decade of growth. The first five years, start with a number, bring it down over time, whatever it looks like is fine. Year six through 10, unless it's genuinely going to go, yeah, Woolies is going to go to 3% in five years time because it owns the market or half the market. The market's going to grow that fast. It is what it is. Uh, But think about how long some of those well-grown businesses can keep growing for. And Bill Mann's point was, this is more valuable than the market assumes because it's assumed by year six that the growth's done. And I think this business is going to grow at higher rates for longer. And so there's that's where the hidden value is because year six gets pulled into the five-year discount cash flow next year. And year seven gets pulled in in two years' time. And someone doing a DCF in five years' time is going to have 20, 17, 15, 13, 10, where the ones done today have three, 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 three. And you can start to see how that would make a difference. So that's important. Also, by the way, it is discounted by that discount rate. So the further you go out, you go, the less valuable it is, less relevant it is. Because if you're discounting a, you know, a 10-year cash flow by 10% a year, it's almost worth nothing by year 10. So it's not going to make a massive difference, but it helps you think through how long some of these businesses might be able to grow for. So that's important. The last one is actually that terminal rate. I'm not going to a whole lot of detail here. Some people use a terminal rate. Some people use a terminal multiple. Whichever one you use, just be careful with that because changing the terminal rate from 2% to 4% a year can meaningfully, Andrew mentioned at the very top, can meaningfully change the value that gets spat out and make sure that number's right, whichever, whatever it is. Uh, if it's too low, you run the risk of leaving money on the table. If it's too high, your company may never be able to make that back, particularly if it's a slow-growing business. So just, just be careful of the terminal rate or the terminal multiple. Um, again, if it doesn't make any sense, you don't worry about it. If you then at some point go to do a DCF, you go, oh, that's what he meant. Um, and, and the other thing is just really quickly, play with the, play with the, the put a spreadsheet either you like or an online tool, whatever you're using, and play with the assumptions. See what happens when you change the terminal rate from 2 to 4%. Nothing else changes, just that. Or change the discount rate from, as Andrew said, 8 to 12%. And see what see what impact it has. And then you might hopefully you'll go, oh my God. The the range this is why DCFs are super useful and super useless. The range of outcomes, you to be right, to be exactly right on the discount rate and the growth rate and the terminal value and whatever decline or increase in the growth rate you have over time, it, it's 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 almost zero, right? It's not quite lotto winning probability, but it's not, not miles off. And so you think, well, hang on, why would I say that a company's worth twenty eight dollars and sixty one cents? It's probably worth somewhere between twenty five and thirty five dollars. Now, you want to be as right as you can directionally and you want to know if it's the top or the bottom end of that range. But using that to get... People use DCFs because they like specificity and they like to know that it's been through a model and there is an output and I can trust it and rely on it. We said the other day, Ram, I think on this podcast, um, you know, when you've got a bad company forecast and someone says, I say, well, we shouldn't use it. And someone says, well, what else are we going to use? So well, just because it exists doesn't mean you should use it. It's got to be accurate and right. You've got to believe it's actually a chance of being probabilistically useful before you do it. 
that reasonable? Yeah, it is. So just a couple of quick follow-up Please, thoughts. Please, yes. Um, it, uh, it, is, it is why you will hear a lot of talk about higher interest rates being bad for the market. Yeah. Because it comes back to that yes, comparative yeah, thing again. So again, if yep, I can like let, oh, nice and easy, let's say hypothetically I can get ten percent by putting my money in a savings account. Yep. Well, I'm just I'm gonna want an extra return to take the risk with shares, right? I'm getting virtually no risk. Now let's leave inflation out of the equation for the moment, just to keep it keep it simple. If I'm getting a ten percent statutory or nominal return in in a in a bank account, well, I, I just I am going to want more to take all the volatility and uncertainty of the share market to do it. If I'm in an environment where interest rates are virtually zero, well, I can afford to pay re- really high prices for my shares. Lo and behold, that's exactly what's that, that is the story writ large. In fact, over the last few years where market valuations went to the moon. Why? Because interest rates were super low. Why is the market freaking out now? Well, inflation means that interest rates will probably go back up and we will see some of that story reverse. And the market's trying to figure out how, how much and all the rest of it. But that's that's why that is super important. And I just want to also double down on your your comment of don't 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 try and come up with a value. Come up with a variety of values. I tend to do three at the least, where I'll sort of say, here's my best bet. Here's everything going perfectly well for this business. You know, I think they're going to go really strongly. I think they're going to grow strongly for at least 15 years. You know, I, I think it's actually pretty low risk. So I'm only going to discount that by 10%. You just got your absolute super rose-colored glasses. And then I go, well, actually, here's here's my, my best guess. And then here's my actually... Things not going to go so well, you know. Not the worst case scenario is the whole thing goes bankrupt. But you know, it was sort of a plausibly uh, uh, unfavorable scenario. They just don't get the growth that they think. Um, I don't. Uh, I need to discount it at a fairly high rate because the risks are much higher than I'm appreciating. And I'm going to get this very big spread, obviously. But sometimes you'll find that the the market price is towards the lower end of that range. Yeah. It just yeah. it just means that it's like, wow, they either disappoint mm-hmm. a little bit, in which case there's not much downside. Mm. Or they do a lot better than everyone's assuming. I get a huge amount of upside. Um, that, they, mm. that there's that asymmetry again. So there's a lot. There's a we. There is a. This is a very long answer, but it's just such a great question, and it, it puts people off. I know when I've mentioned it to friends. Oh, you should look into DCFs like that. I, I am not <laughs> doing that. I'm going to go put my yeah. thumb in this thumb screw because that sounds a lot a lot more pleasant <laughs> than what you're explaining. But if you're into this kind of stuff, look into it. Stick with it. It can be a little bit of a of a mind mess, but but. Um, it'll be very, very, very mm-hmm. much worthwhile. Yep. You, you, as with most of these things, the principle is far, and the, and the process is far more useful than the the outputs. Um, yes. Also, by the way, if you're not prepared to do a DCF, you don't have to. But if you're not prepared to, just ask yourself on what basis you are investing. And I think some people, if you actually look, if you listen to this, you you love investing, and I love that. I don't want to discourage you. Um, but if you find yourself at the end of the day going, I love business, I love investing, I love listening to these guys, and then I just kind of pick companies based on the ticker or the color or how I feel about them or whatever. Um, that, if that's working for you, then hey, good luck to you, I suppose. But just just have a think about that. Investing needn't be super hard, but if you're also not prepared to put a decent amount of time in actually improving at it, then your odds get back to kind of random chance at some point. Mm. Um, so if you're kind of like, I don't care about DCS, don't care about PEs, I just think this is going to be a good company or whatever. Um, just just I mean, maybe maybe instinctively, maybe in, in that in that thinking, you've kind of got a mind that can go through business models almost without having to think about it. You do end up making good decisions. Um, but just, just a, you know, I don't want to discourage you from listening or from investing, but just have a think. Because if it's 
if you find yourself with the kind of like, I love investing, but I really don't want to put the effort in. I don't want to learn. I don't want to get good at this stuff or, or you know, the base of which I'm making my decisions is, is not great, then have a think. I don't use DCFs a lot, by the way, so I'm not saying you have to do them. Um, I, I tend to, if I do them, actually use reverse DCFs, which we'll talk about another time, but it's basically working out what the market is assuming based on the current price rather than the other way around, trying to work out what price I think it's worth. That's why I use them, but same, same, same in both directions, just a different way of applying them. Uh, but if it's not your thing, that's cool. Just, um, just be... Just, just be careful about how you're investing and what you're doing, and, and just make sure it's working for you, and it, and it will keep working for you in a in a in a in a way that's going to add value. Otherwise, maybe think about doing something differently. Yeah, is that fair? Look, it makes so much sense, doesn't it? Like if we were this is a golf podcast, and um, we were talking about how you improve your swing, everyone's going to assume that yeah. you have to put some work in, some practice. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Anyone who puts ten thousand hours into any endeavor is going to get significantly, mm-hmm. significantly better. Are you going to be on the PGA tour? No, probably yeah. not. Yeah. But your your game from your baseline is going to improve yeah. measurably. Yes, measurably. Yes. yes. I'm trying Equally to have this. Not, yeah. Uh, and if you're well, just going, oh, look, I want to be better at golf, but I'm not really going to try. I'm just gonna, I, I think I'm just going to walk there and just like just just have a swing and see how I go. Yeah. If, if that's your approach to golf or investing, that again, may, maybe every now and again you hit a good one. That's great. Yeah. If you're going to put it in the into the <laughs> into the uh, rough or into the water more often than not, either maybe think about not playing golf or I mean, if you like it, good luck to you if you're a masochist, then knock yourself out. But <laughs> otherwise, you know, if you're kind of like one of those people, like uh, I probably golf's probably not for me, and I'm probably not going to spend a lot of money on clubs and gear or whatever. I'm going to watch golf on TV because it's great. Uh, and I'm going to go and find something else to do with my time. I'd probably say the same about investing to some degree. Yep, yep. And it's it's the, the thing that I really want to make the point of here is I'm trying to instill this into my my 12 year old boy at the moment mm. is that you know whatever you he he kind of has this expectation that you know if he's not good at something straight away he's not interested. Yes. Um, so true. <laughs> so true. The, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I, mean, I, <laughs> I, I yeah. can empathise, but but yeah, I, yeah. but what I'm trying to get a, get get across to him is that yeah. you know there will. There is, there's not a question of, oh, look, if you put a bit of work in, you might get a bit better. You will. I'm not saying you'll be the best in the world at it, but you, you, yeah, you, yeah. Can't, you can't not be better at it mm, if you practice mm, something mm. for long enough. Mm. And, and what I would say to anyone listening is, is that this world of, of investing in stock markets and high finance can seem really esoteric mm. and complicated. But I'll make the same guarantee to you that I make to my, to my 12-year-old, which is mm. if you put the time in and put the work in, you will get better. Not you might. You will. And in fact, the best gains are made early on. When you're starting at a very low base, the, the, the incremental gains are huge early on. Now, if, you, if you're a Warren Buffett, look, he can always learn more, right? Mm-hmm. But the, the added benefits to him from, from doing extra study and reading these days are very, very small because he's already knows so much. But this is the great thing. If you're starting from a low base, you put a bit of time into it, you're going to find yourself yeah. – Really, are you going to be the next Warren Buffett? Probably not. None of us are. But are you going to be better than a vast, vast majority of retail mm. punters out there who are just swinging and you know putting it into the weeds every single time? You almost certainly will be. Yeah. Um, and and people just want the, they want all the the fun and riches of the share market <laughs> without any of the work. Those that put it in, you might not ever. No one will ever notice because we're all sort of small fry out there, and you know people aren't writing articles about us in the AFR. Mm. But you can do exceedingly well. So, so put the effort in and, and the results will come. I like it. Mate, that's a probably a fantastic place to finish this particular podcast. Put the effort in, the benefits will come. You don't have, as I said, you don't have to be Buffett, you don't have to be Greg Norman, you don't have to be whoever. Oh, I mentioned Greg Norman these days. You don't, you don't have to be um, whoever, whichever golfers we actually respect these days. Uh, you can, oh, sorry. Harsh, Caddy. 
Uh, but uh, you will get you'll get better enough. A, a better enough to start enjoying it. B better enough isn't a phrase, but let's go with it because I've started with it. Better enough to, uh, to to actually start getting some decent returns from it. And you know what? If you can be a if you can go out on a Saturday morning play golf and actually enjoy it because you're playing reasonably well off a, off a relatively you know moderate handicap and you're getting better. That's in, in investing parlance. That's probably market beating, and it's probably enough to make you a lot of money and to enjoy the process. And that I reckon is worth it for everybody. Yep. I was going to say, will you join me next week, mate? But uh, next week you will join me because we're going to pre-record this one. Will you? Will I see you on Friday? You will. Of course you will. Good. I look forward to it. Until then, you can hit us up. Uh, by the way, I am away at the moment. Uh, Andrew's having a well-deserved rest from having to talk to me every week. Uh, but we will be looking for questions when we get back, which means you have a chance to throw us some. Uh, let's go in uh, email first. Info at fool.com.au. Let's go with Zuck's baby next. Facebook, you can get me on facebook.com slash Money or facebook.com slash The Motley Fool Australia. On Twitter, Andrew is exclusively on Twitter in a deal with Jack and Elon. Uh, he's at Sage underscore Simeon or at Strawman Invest. And you get me on Twitter or Insta at TMF Scott P or on uh, The Motley Fool on Twitter and Insta at The Motley Fool AU. Hit us up with your questions, comments, feedback, suggestions. We appreciate them all. We read them all. Um, We've got a pretty good track record of getting through them, I have to say. I'm not sure we've hit every single question every single time, uh, but we do a pretty good job. So if you have a question or something you want to talk, us to talk about, please let me know and we will make sure we do our best to get it onto the podcast in the very near future because, frankly, I'm going to come back and go, I wonder what's in the mailbag. I hope there's something. So if you want a Sunday mailbag episode when I get back, now is your chance. But until then, full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.